Welcome to Blue State Conversations. This is our place to discuss the political theory from all sides, bridging the political divides that split our society. Welcome. This is Will Matthew with special guest Shane. And here's our opening problem. The David versus Goliath story is one of the favorites for media and storytelling. Everyone likes an underdog, especially when the giants are not socially favorable. Such a story appeared to happen this year when a subreddit known as Wall Street Bets and a Reddit user named Roaring Kitty made millions off of hedge funds who were betting the stock would fail. The whirlwind that came next brought a deep distrust between, quote, retail investors, individuals who are not institutions, and hedge funds. Claims of cheating, congressional hearings, and a good hard look at our financial institutions are still ongoing. So the question of the show is, do we have free and fair markets? Yeah, and we're very happy to welcome on with us today, uh, Shane. He was an early GME investor. He got on board months before the initial spike that caused all the attention. Um, he was one of the original people that saw the potential in the stock. He's been day trading and involved in the stocks and security trading for four years. And he started full-time in September, actually quitting his job to do it as a full-time affair. He was interviewed by Forbes on the whole GameStop situation. He was a real estate investor for about five years and all this before he even turns 30. So welcome to the show, Shane. Thanks for having me. I'm glad to be here with you guys. Yeah, I think the question everybody has just to get started is what happened? Uh, well, in a single sentence, uh, a short squeeze in combination with a gamma squeeze. Now, most people are probably not going to know what those things are, but I'm here to hopefully make some sense of it and try to explain it in the most simple layman's terms that I can. So I guess first you'd have to know what shorting a stock is. I'm sure you guys are, are familiar with it, but for your listeners that aren't in the investing world, normally what people would want to do to make money is they buy low and sell high. When you short a stock, you're just doing that in the reverse order. So you sell high and then buy low. And the way that works is say you, William, have an Xbox. And I think that the price of Xboxes are going to go down. Uh, I can say, hey, let me borrow your Xbox for a bit and then I'll give it back to you in a month and I'll pay you some interest. So you let me borrow your Xbox and I pay you like $10 in interest. Well, I immediately go to GameStop and I turn in your Xbox and I sell it to them and they give me you know, $200 for it. Then in one month's time, if the price of Xboxes have gone down to say $100, I can go to someone and buy it back for $100. I go to you, I give you your Xbox back, and I collected $200. I only had to pay $100 to get it back, plus I paid you $10 in interest. So then I get a pocket the difference of $90. And I've essentially profited by the, the lowering in value of something of Xboxes. And people do this with stocks all the time. A lot of people really don't like it. Europe has temporarily banned short selling in some cases. And I don't think shorting is a bad thing. I'm very pro shorting. A lot of people think it's this weird that you profit off of other people's misery, but it's a very important thing in markets. So for example, it kind of provides a financial incentive for people to discover fraud. For instance, Enron, which everyone knows was engaged in massive fraud. Short sellers had an incentive to, to dig into it, as well as other companies, to see if there's anything mischievous going on. And if they could identify fraud before it really came out, they could place short bets on it and say, hey, everyone, like, look at this. There's something going on behind the scenes here. And then once it falls, they're essentially getting rewarded. They get paid for doing that work, for doing that due diligence and trying to bring this to light that, hey, this company is overvalued for one reason or another. And so if you have too many people shorting something, let's say I borrowed your Xbox and I sold it off. And then one month comes and you're like, hey, I, I want my Xbox back. Well, if the price of Xboxes didn't fall, let's say they rose and there's this massive shortage and now Xboxes are $500. I now have to go and buy that Xbox for $500 to return it to you. So I only collected $200 selling off your Xbox, and now I have to buy it back for 500 So now I've lost $300. So if you have a lot of people that all collectively do this, say you have a bunch of hedge funds that all short these Xboxes, or in this case, they were doing it with GameStop stock. They all sold it off to a ridiculous amount. 
And then the price didn't go down like they thought and ended up going up and they were forced to buy it back. The reason they were forced to buy it back is the people that they borrowed the shares from, those people are still entitled to those shares. So they had to buy it back to give it to them as the price was rising and, and their brokers, if the price starts going up, you end up getting something called a margin call. Because let's say the price of Xboxes or GameStop just goes up by some ridiculous amount. Instead of 200, they go up to $2,000. Well, in financial markets, you have this intermediary, it's your broker. They're the ones that kind of transact on your behalf with the exchanges. And if you go bankrupt, the other side of the trade is still promised the cash or the stocks that you made the trade with, even if you can't provide it, because say you go bankrupt. So what happens is your broker is the one that ends up having to foot the bill. So in order to protect themselves, what brokers do is if you're in a position where you're gonna have massive losses, they will close your position for you. So they will say, hey, we're just gonna go out and buy this Xbox on your behalf because we don't wanna wait until the price gets to 4,000. At 2,000, we're just gonna buy the Xbox back, give it back to the original owner, and you're just gonna be out the $1,800. And that's essentially what happened. There were a lot of market participants, there were retailers, there were hedge funds, there were some other funds that were short in GameStop, and as the price went up and up, their brokers called them and said, hey, you need to buy back because if you go bankrupt, we don't want to be eating this cost. So we're forcing you to close out your positions. That's what a short squeeze is. So just the way that I understand this, it sounds like they were able to satisfy the request in the sense that if they hadn't stopped and closed their position, they would have waited until it was even getting worse and then have a greater loss. Yeah, and so in fact, what some of these funds did, and I can understand the mentality of why some of them did it. When the trade went against them, a lot of these funds were shorting GameStop when it was $4 a share. It made its way down to under three and it was trading for 280 something earlier in the year 2020. And what they did was as the price started rising, they're like, oh, well, we're down on these shorts that we made at you know $4, the price is now 20. Well, the company's going bankrupt. We, we just know it's going bankrupt, it's going to zero. Either that, or they were just following mathematical models and not looking at more human factors. They were just following algorithms. And they're like, well, we just need to double down because eventually it's gonna go to zero. If we are able to short it and get $4 out of it, because if I sell it for four and I can buy it back at zero, that's $4. Now it's $20. If I can sell it at $20 and buy it back at zero, I make five times as much money. So as the price of GameStop rose, they piled on and they just shorted it even harder, essentially putting themselves into an even worse situation. They made it much worse on themselves than it really had to be. So that crazy price jump that we saw was the effect of them continuing to double down. Yeah, I suspect that the price got as high as it did for a variety of factors, but one of them is probably a heavy factor is the fact that they doubled down, that as the price rose, rather than accepting their loss and that they were wrong, they doubled down, which for some funds, I suspect was arrogance on their part saying, well, our thesis is right. We're not revisiting this. They're a dying mall-based retailer. Other funds, the more quantitative ones, probably were just like, oh, it's getting away from its moving average. We know it's on a trajectory to zero. It's going to resume the trend. The math says that, you know, it's going to go back down again. We just need to double down. This is a good thing. We can make even more money now. As a consumer, I would say that they've done nothing to innovate, but from what I've heard, they still have cash in the bank and not a small amount. So it seems like a little bit air of arrogance to assume that they're going to burn through all their funds and go bankrupt. Right. So what hedge funds are is they actually provide a vital role in society. And a lot of people hate them because their managers make, you know, sometimes billions of dollars in a single year. What they do is they provide uncorrelated returns for investors. So let's say you have something like a teacher's pension fund or some sort of retirement fund where you need to have very stable returns and you can't stomach the volatility that markets sometimes go through. Sometimes markets freak out, we have recessions, companies can have huge swings. What a hedge fund will do with a good strategy, you can provide consistent returns that have less volatility if you have really smart managers in place. The way they do this typically is they were originally called long short equity funds where they're willing to short things as well as buy things. 
So let's say I don't know what direction the overall market's going to go, but I've done some research on these two companies. Let's say Intel and AMD. They both manufacture CPU processors for computers. And I've done my research and I've determined that AMD appears to be a setup for more success. It looks like over the long run, and this is an oversimplification, but let's say I've done some research and it looks like AMD is going to outperform Intel. But I don't know how the overall economy is going to do. I don't know if we're going to have a recession. I don't know if we're going to have a boom. I don't know if things are going to stay flat. But I think AMD will do better than Intel. What I can do as a hedge fund is I will buy AMD and I will short Intel. And what that does is no matter what the overall market does, so long as AMD outperforms Intel, I'd make money. So let's take the case where the economy goes up. Let's say AMD stock goes up 10% and Intel goes up five. Well, because I shorted Intel, I end up losing 5% on that trade, but I made 10% on my AMD trade, so I'm up. Let's say the market goes down. Because AMD is a little more resilient, they go down 5%, but Intel goes down 10%. In that case, I lost 5% on AMD, but I made 10% because I was short Intel. And so that's a really valuable investment strategy to have, like I said, because you can do these types of trades or these types of strategies where if you need very stable returns, you can do them. And what a lot of hedge funds over this past decade have done, one of their favorite strategies in aggregate has been to long technology and short sort of Main Street brick and mortar retail because they've seen this trend of Amazon growing quite fast, even since 2009. They see more and more stores going down as they see the transition. They're like, well, no matter whether the economy goes up or down, we see this transition of people going online for shopping rather than in person. So a lot of these hedge funds just started blanket shorting retail and blanket buying tech. And that worked out exceptionally well for many of them when COVID hit, because that just further accelerated the trend, bankrupting quite a number of retailers while turning a lot of the tech companies into absolute giants. The problem with this strategy though, is if your thesis is wrong, or if there's ever a reverse in trend, it doesn't matter what direction the market's going in, you can end up losing a lot of money. Because let's say I was wrong about my whole AMD and Intel, and Intel starts going up and AMD goes down. Now I lose money on both sides. I lose money on AMD as it goes down because I was long AMD. And I lose money on Intel as it goes up because I was short Intel. So you really have to know what you're doing to successfully implement one of these uncorrelated hedge strategies. So basically, they can lose billions in an instant because if they're wrong on both accounts, it's just compounds on top of each other. Yeah, and, and even more so, these hedging strategies that they use where they long one thing and short another, oftentimes the divergence isn't that much. Oftentimes it's just AMD will do maybe 1%, 2% better than Intel over the course of a whole year. And so what they do provide returns of, you know, seven to 10%, something like what the market were, would, but without the correlation, is they leverage themselves up. And so they actually trade with, oftentimes their prime brokers will give them 10 times leverage. So say I'm running a fund where I have a billion dollars of investors, say you and some of my friends decide to put in, I've got a billion dollars in the fund. My prime broker will essentially lend me $9 billion to then trade with. And then I'm able to trade with $10 billion to do these strategies to try to amplify the returns on these little arbitrage opportunities that I find, which again, so long as you're right, it works out great. But if you're wrong, not only will you lose on both sides of the leg, but then your losses are amplified because it's not just your investor's money you're playing with. You're also playing with a loan that you took out from your prime broker. So you can very quickly see how you can end up with massive losses like Melvin Capital, for instance, they lost 53% of their equity in January of this year. Wow. But you mentioned the margin call. That is something that can happen on retail investors. Yes, actually. So margin calls happen both on institutions and individual retail investors. So normally, if you had a margin call as a retail investor, there's a couple ways it could happen. One, you could be using, well, you have to be using margin. Yeah, if you're not borrowing money, it won't matter. Yes, if you're not borrowing money, it won't matter. There are some 
odd situations where you could end up in it, but you'd have to do things like trading with derivatives or shorting stocks to sort of end up in that situation without really borrowing money. But you really have to know what you're you're doing to kind of get caught up in that situation. For example, Robinhood, the most popular app with a lot of newbie traders, you're not even allowed to short stock on there. You can't naked short options and you can't short stock on there. So they, they do actually, as, as much flack as they get, they don't give newbie traders access to infinite loss potential trades. I'm pretty sure in its advanced setting, you can turn it on. You, I don't think you can, you can short sell options if you have them covered, uh, but you can't short sell stock. I see. You can't short individual stocks in Robinhood. They, they don't allow it. They don't allow for strategies that would be considered infinite loss scenarios. Every other broker, I, I should say every other traditional broker does allow that. Like I have accounts with Fidelity, Interactive Brokers, Charles Schwab. With any of them, I can engage in, in what's known as infinite risk strategies, where in theory, your losses is, is unlimited. And those would be things like shorting stock, or there's options trades where you could essentially leverage short stock. You could sell a call option when you don't actually own the underlying stock. And if the price goes up, you can in theory lose an infinite amount of money. So I think we've covered a lot of how you can lose money, Melvin. So Melvin Capital is a hedge fund and they lost a lot of money doing this, putting in these strategies that have infinite risk and basically they got caught. Yeah, so Melvin in particular, it's interesting because we can't really see exactly what they're doing as far as the shorting because they don't have to disclose the stocks that they short. Wall Street Bets found out that them, as well as many other hedge funds, were shorting it by doing something they were buying put options, which if you're buying a put option, originally it's it was meant as like an insurance contract where it would pay you out if a stock price fell. So you could use it to insure a portfolio. Say you own a stock and you're worried about it falling. You could buy a put option and it's just, if your stock goes to zero, you get some sort of payout. So your loss isn't complete and total. Well, you can also speculate with these insurance products. You can buy the insurance when you don't even own the underlying. And partially that's what I do sometimes. If I have a strong feeling about a way that something, if I think something's going to go down, I, I buy a put option on it. And in fact, at the beginning of 2020, I shorted GameStop by doing that. In February, I bought puts on GameStop and, and made a couple hundred dollars. It wasn't a whole lot. And I ended up actually taking profits when I found out that Michael Burry had invested in GameStop and was still holding on to them. He's an investor that I kind of really look up to. And I was like, well, I'm up on this trade. I'm going to close it out because I don't want to do the research on this particular thing right now, but I don't want to trade against him. He's really smart. I respect him. Whatever his reason is, I do not want to be betting against him. So I took my money and ran and, and didn't revisit GameStop until September. And Melvin Capital, I was kind of getting on a tangent there, but they, the reason we found out they were short was they were buying a large amount of put options on GameStop and they do have to disclose options that they purchase. So people could see that they were essentially making this massive bet that GameStop was going to fail. And it wasn't just them, they're just the ones that kind of showed up in the media, but other hedge funds were doing it too, because it just looked inevitable like they were going to zero. That makes so much more sense, because I remember reading that they said, oh, they're shorting it. And I was like, how can they know? Where are they looking this up? Yeah, so funds don't need to disclose their short positions. So you, you can't actually know. What you can do is FINRA, the financial, pretty exactly what it stands for, Industry Regulatory Authority, I believe, they release short interest reports every two weeks, which to me is a little crazy, but we have the technology to report it a lot more frequently than that. But every two weeks, they'll report out the short interest. And what that is, is how much of the stock has been sold short. So say I have a company like GameStop where the outstanding shares are about 65 million shares. Well, let's say uh, short sellers have sold 32 million. That makes the short interest 50%. Looking back historically, a short interest of 20% is extremely high. If a company has 20% of its stock shorted, it's at risk of a short squeeze. It could be hard for those short sellers to find shares to buy if they get margin called or if they need to close their positions. And GameStop was, there's a couple different ways that you can calculate it. 
But at its peak, its short interest was anywhere from 140% to 220%. Essentially, short sellers had sold, they had borrowed and sold more of the company than even the number of shares in existence. And that doesn't necessarily mean there was anything shady going on. It, it increases the probability that there was. Because what could happen is say, say, will you let me borrow your Xbox and I sell it short? Well, the person that I sell it to, they could then, they, I mean, they, they bought the Xbox from me. They own it. So then they let their friend borrow it, who then sells it short. I feel like this is a great example because I don't even own an Xbox. Yeah. So what happens is you end up with the same share shorted multiple times over and over again. It's called rehypothesis. I can't pronounce it, but there is a technical term for it where the same share ends up getting lent out multiple times. There's another way that it could end up being that high. That's something called naked shorting. So normally I would have to borrow these shares before I could sell them. I would have to locate them and say, yeah, you definitely have an Xbox. You hand it to me. I, I sell it to someone. Well, with stocks, it's not really a physical thing that gets delivered. So if you're a, a shady fund manager, what you could do is you could just essentially print stock into existence that didn't exist before and sell it. And you have a bit of an incentive to do this because normally when you borrow a stock to sell it short, you have to pay interest on it. You pay interest to the person you're borrowing it from because you're, you're taking on a loan. You're just taking on a loan of stock instead of US dollars. Well, if you don't borrow it, you can just print one into existence, sell it off, and if the price goes down and you're right, you buy it back and then you don't even have to pay the interest on it. This is highly illegal. The SEC does not allow this. <laughs> there, there are exceptions actually. So market makers are in fact allowed to naked short sell securities. Now there's regulations in place as to how long they can maintain that naked short. They have a certain number of days before they're required to buy it back. They have to disclose how much they're doing. And the reason they kind of have this exception is what market makers are is they provide liquidity to markets. So if you don't have an army of millions of day traders constantly buying and selling every security on the New York Stock Exchange, you can imagine how if you wanted to, if you were a pension and you wanted to buy or sell some of your position, it might be hard to find a buyer or a seller on the other end at the exact same time that you want to get out. So what market makers are is they're kind of ready to trade all the time. They're high frequency trading firms. And what they do is they're basically always willing to buy and sell stock. And the way they make money is they're always willing to buy slightly below market price and they're always willing to sell slightly above market price. They make their money on the spread. And so anyone that wants to get out of a trade fast, these market makers will basically be willing to buy your stock at a discount if you just want to get rid of it right away. And they're willing to sell anyone stock that wants it at a slight markup if you really want to get into a trade at any time. So they provide liquidity and one of the, the exceptions for them being allowed to naked short sell is sometimes they might not actually have the shares in existence to provide demand. So if there's a huge demand for a stock all of a sudden, no one might be willing to sell it. They do allow market makers to just naked sell just to kind of give everyone the demand that they want without the price going to infinity. So the promise of a sale. Yeah, they're like, hey, we're giving you an IOU. This isn't real stock, this is an IOU slip. We'll give you the stock at some point. And the idea is the market maker and a rational market would be like, you know, there's this huge demand for this thing. It's gonna go back down eventually. Once the price goes down, we'll buy the shares and deliver them to the people that we sold all these IOUs to. It'll basically, the, just the assumption that everything will revert to the mean. These things are just temporary and the market will return to normal. So again, normally naked short selling is illegal. There are exceptions to it, but like I said, market makers do have rules on how long they're allowed to be naked short for. They do have to return it within so many days. It depends on the particular situation. We don't really have time to get into that right now. So I think, you know, we've covered a good amount of how this happened, how the price rose, what was going on. I think what a lot of people get confused by is the claims of cheating and fraud. Cause you explained a couple different ways that there could be fraud, but the suspicion, were there any singular events that made it feel like there was fraud or there was cheating taking place that people point to? Yeah. So the largest event that people point to is Robin hood shutting down trading. 
And I think it's interesting that Robinhood has bared the brunt of this really, because it wasn't just them. Most brokers restricted trading in some way. Robinhood made it so that you just couldn't buy at all. Forget margin, even if you had a cash account with Robinhood, you couldn't buy on that day. And my Charles Schwab, actually, I was day trading at the time, I had sold out and I wanted to buy back in and I couldn't because my cash hadn't settled yet. I was using my broker's margin and they had implemented it to where I couldn't use margin to buy it. So I was restricted in some sense, but Robinhood completely restricted it and interactive brokers also completely restricted it. Although the reasons that the two firms give were different, which I, I think is interesting. So I believe Vlad Tenev when he says that they essentially got a margin call, they said, hey Vlad, your company has this huge risky portfolio of stocks that's being held. We're gonna need collateral because all brokers are operating on margin. They don't have I mean, some brokers have trillions of dollars. Just real quick, who, who is Vlad? So Vlad Tenev is the CEO and founder of Robinhood. Okay. And he was in he was one of the witnesses in the first congressional hearing. And his explanation on the whole thing, again, I believe it, is essentially they got a margin call from the DTCC that asked to put up a bunch of money. They didn't have the money. So a solution was, I believe according to him, I'd have to go back and watch it. The idea came from within Robinhood to if they restricted the trading in these specific stocks, it would de-risk the holdings of Robinhood to where the DTCC would allow them to put up a lot less collateral and they wouldn't have to put up the full $3 billion. They would only have to put up like $600 million. And they very quickly tried to raise money from their investors and took on lines of credit. That way they could post more collateral at the DTCC to try to lower the restrictions that way they could allow their users to buy these more risky stocks without Robinhood essentially getting a margin call for it. Why is Robinhood important in this story? Is it a special broker? Have they done anything ridiculous? Who are Robinhood and why are they important? So Robinhood really changed the entire landscape of the trading and investing world a couple of years ago when they managed to create a platform where everyday people could buy and sell stocks with no commission. At the time, commissions had been coming down for a while, but they still existed. Almost every single broker, you know, you still had to pay a couple of dollars for a trade. Back in the day in the 90s, it was like $20, $50 a trade. It had come down to some discount brokers are giving you $5 trades. Robinhood said, we're, we're getting rid of it entirely. You can just download this app on your phone and you're ready to trade in under an hour. They did really innovative things that they've been criticized for where they allow for margin and instant deposit. So I could open an account and transfer money in. And before the money even clears, they'll just give me margin and say, hey, you can start trading with it right now. Before we even get the money from your bank account, we'll let you start buying and selling stocks with it. In fact, there's a funny instance. I remember a couple of years ago, I saw a post on Wall Street Bets of a guy who was homeless and he had a bank account with like no money in it. And he initiated a transfer to Robinhood of $1,000, but he really didn't have any money, but Robinhood gave him the, the $1,000 and he used it to make some ridiculous gamble and <laughs> bought stocks with money he didn't have and then he just deleted the app and ran off with it. But it ruined his credit score over $1,000, but it's, you know, people can do that, but it's not too often that something like that happens. But you can start trading right away with no commissions. It's a very easy to use interface. It compared to like the desktop platforms that most traditional brokers have. It's very simplified. It makes things fun. A lot of Congress people have criticized it for gamifying the market. You know, when you're up, your screen is green. When you're down, your screen is red. You scratch off your free stocks and it's confetti. It makes it really fun and it introduces a lot of people. I, I think generally they've been a force for good in getting people involved in, in trading and investing. And if a lot of the stats are to believe that Vlad put out, They've done a good job because for the most part, it would seem that Robinhood users are just buying and holding and investing for the long run. You do have a small percentage of them that are day trading and making risky plays and, and messing with options and margin. But I mean, you're going to have that with every platform and, and you need people doing that, honestly, to have a, a functioning market. You need speculators and you need people willing to take a large amount of risk to essentially try to eliminate market inefficiencies that exist. Yeah, because I know the complaint for a long time was that Americans are not investing, that the stock market was a rich person's game. And then you have a company that comes along and they <laughs> basically give it back to people who 
you know, are going to be investing in small amounts, you know, then all of a sudden the complaint is, well, hey, you're not supposed to do it like that. So it does seem a little counterproductive. Well, it's an education but, problem. It was always accessible, at least for the last few decades. I've been able to use other applications to do it, but Robinhood is just easy. And they do a very good job of grabbing people. They have very visible ads. It's very marketable and trendy, and it's easier to get people into it that wouldn't otherwise be interested in stock trading, which I think is great. During the last hearing, something that I thought was really cool is Mr. I can't pronounce his name, Piwawar, I want to say. It's spelled a weird name. He's an ex-SEC commissioner said that it would be really cool if 10 years from now we've got the top hedge fund manager getting interviewed on CNBC asking how he got his start. It was like, well, as a teenager, I, I downloaded Robinhood and found out that I, I had a knack for this and I just really loved researching companies and doing due diligence. And, you know, we can tap sort of the potential of people that might have an inherent talent for this thing that never would have been exposed to it otherwise. Other people that lose out that, you know, aren't most people are not going to be any good at active trading will learn very quickly that they're not good at active trading. And hopefully that'll push them to do sort of the more what everybody, what most people should do, which is just dollar cost average into total Vanguard index funds much sooner than they otherwise would. And then you have people that start saving for retirement much earlier, which is also a net positive to society. So I think Robinhood has been a net positive force for good the reason that people think that there's something fraudulent going on is because there's a lot of interconnected players that don't have the best rap sheet or record. So Robinhood makes their money on payment for order flow. So they essentially sell their orders to a market maker. The largest one is Citadel. And Citadel is ran by Ken Griffin. And the reason that people are suspicious, and I think they have a right to be suspicious. So FINRA is a private regulatory body, kind of like a private version of the SEC. They oversee slightly different things, but it's a regulatory body. And if you look at the number of FINRA violations that resulted in fines for a broker like Vanguard, who's been around since 1977, they've had two regulatory actions taken against them where they had to pay fines. One was it must have been like a technical glitch. One of their customers didn't get the best bid price when they wanted to buy something and something else minor. So over a 40, almost 45 year history, they've had two fines that they've had to pay. Citadel Security, specifically the market maker, has been in business since 2001. And they have had 58 instances of wow. breaking regulatory <laughs> requirements and having to pay massive fines, sometimes in the millions of dollars. So, so the, there's just the suspicion due to the history of the plan. Right. I can understand why people are suspicious. I'm, in fact, extremely suspicious myself of Citadel. And point seventy two. so Melvin Capital, which is kind of made out to be the bad guy by some of the people on Wall Street Bets for short and GameStop, they got bailed out by Citadel and point seventy two which are both larger hedge funds. Now, Citadel is, is kind of a parent company. It owns multiple subsidiaries. One of them is a hedge fund. One of them is a market maker. One of them is a tech company. But they're all owned by Ken Griffin. And in theory, they're supposed to be this firewall between some of these subsidiaries like Citadel Securities, the market maker, and Citadel, the hedge fund, because Citadel, the hedge fund, could use insider information from the market maker to trade for themselves and essentially rip the market off. And and they, they swear up and down there's this firewall. You know, regulators are always looking at it to make sure that there's no breach in it, to make sure that the employees at one are not talking to the employees at the other, or that there's no network connections between the computers so they're not able to trade on the information that a hedge fund isn't supposed to have. That's sort of privileged to market makers. But Citadel, the hedge fund, and Point72 bailed out Melvin Capital. Now, Point72 is owned and ran by Steve Cohen. There's kind of two Cohens in this GameStop story. And Steve Cohen actually was part of the largest insider trading scandal in US history. Back in 2014, he ran a hedge fund called SAC Capital, SAC. And he ended up paying a fine of $1.8 billion, the largest in history. He had eight employees plead guilty to insider trading. At the time, Gabe Plotkin, the founder and manager of Melvin Capital actually worked for Steve Cohen at SAC Capital. Although he was never indicted, it was shown that he had access to insider information, but he might not have, he probably didn't know that it was insider information and didn't act on it at all. But people are suspicious because he did work 
for Steve Cohen, who paid the biggest fine in history, who was, you know, in this, this largest scandal. If you've ever actually seen the show Billions, I believe it's in the first or maybe the second season where Bobby Axelrod ends up paying a $1.9 billion fine and isn't allowed to trade for some period of time. That was inspired by Steve Cohen and his whole situation in, in 2013 and 14. So these players between, you know, them paying billions of dollars in fines for insider trading, them having been fined by FINRA for breaking regulations, and Citadel in particular, if I can find some of the ones, some of the ones that they have been in violation of is abusive naked short selling when they're not supposed to, not disclosing short positions. One of the arguments a lot of the Wall Street bets conspiracy theorists, but even some of the more mainstream analysts are saying is they can just kind of build fines into the cost of doing business because their potential losses or their potential profits are, are much greater than the fines if they get caught lying. And short interest, what I mentioned earlier in the show, where Finn releases every two weeks how much of a stock has been shorted, that's self-reported. So these funds will just self-report to FINRA however much they're short, but for the most part, no one ever actually checks to see what their account balances are. So they could lie about it to give the impression that they've covered when they haven't and just pay the fine, and that might be cheaper than if people know that they're short and attempt to squeeze them, and then they lose you know, a few billion more dollars. Again, there's not really any way to know without the SEC going in and looking at their books, doing some audits to be like, are they lying? Are they basically submitting false reports to FINRA? I, I don't know. We just have to wait until the SEC actually is done with their investigation. So it, it seems like to the average person, You've got all the players in place who have been caught doing things before. Right? You know, Steve Cohen, he's been caught before. You've got uh, Citadel with their 50-plus <laughs> regulatory breaches. You've got a former employee of uh, Steve Cohen who's working at one of the main at Melvin. You know, so those people are in place. And then the suspicion is that they found a stock that they thought they could probably do some shady stuff on because it was a sure bet this thing was going down. Because... Malls are not doing well. Steam has taken over gaming, right? You don't go out and get the video game, really, unless you're a parent buying for your five-year-old. You know, that's really the only, you know, that's the, kind of the sentiment. So they probably thought they had a safe bet. If I was a conspiracy theorist, that's kind of how I would think about it. Yeah, so and if you're... kind of get close. If you're the type of person looking for a conspiracy, I mean, there's, there's one to find here. I mean, there's all the players that have done it before. There's ample motive. There is certainly a lot of evidence... I would kind of like to say it's like we see a building and there's a bunch of smoke coming out of it. Now, it could be some kids having some rave and they've got smoke machines in there. They've got glowy lights and they're, you know, just partying, having a good time with a bunch of smoke machines and they're coming out the windows. Or there could be a fire. You don't know until you look inside. But there is a house with an awful lot of smoke coming out of it right now. So it's kind of understandable that some of the people that feel like they got cheated see that and they're like, there's definitely a fire in there. Like there, there's no way that this is anything other than that. I think there is something nefarious and illegal going on. I have almost no doubt that there is. My question is more to what extent. It's kind of like how some people would say there's never any voter fraud at all. Well, let's face it, there's probably someone voting that shouldn't in every single election. Is it enough to change the outcome? No, but you could have questions like, well, how rampant is it? How, how much is there? I think it's kind of the same thing here. I'm pretty sure that there's some abusive, naked short selling going on. I'm pretty sure someone is lying to Fender about their short interest. Now, how many people are doing it and how much are they lying or fudging their numbers by? We don't know yet. And that's kind of what's really going on. If, if it's just a minor fund doing some things, it's probably not enough to affect the market. But if all these big players are getting together and conspiring to false report their short interest to FINRA and they're trying to hide naked shorts, I mean, yeah, that is absolutely going to change the way that markets behave and function. So that's basically the fear that there could be market manipulation going on if all of the big players, because theoretically, these guys are supposed to be all separate. The market makers are supposed to be separate from the hedge funds. But if they all get together, then you, there's really nothing you can do. They right. And a lot of these guys, they have to stay separate because they have conflicting interests. So the market makers are supposed to be separate from the hedge funds. Even though the brokers are getting paid by the market makers, they're not supposed to be. The brokers have a duty 
to place trades that will get their clients the best price, that will get their clients the highest sell price and the lowest buy price. And the way it's currently set up with payment for order flow, even though I don't necessarily, well, I didn't have a problem with it until the last congressional hearing where I, where something was news to me. There were a couple of studies done that concluded that when Robinhood servers went down due to technical errors, the bid ask spread on the NASDAQ in New York stock exchanges actually got tighter. In other words, there seemed to be better liquidity and everyone in the market got better prices when Robinhood servers were experiencing technical glitches. Hmm. Which, it can indicate a number of things. I briefly read over the study. They seem to believe that it's because Robinhood traders are just noise. It's a lot of random trading and they're kind of eating up liquidity on both sides and they just don't know what they're doing. It could also mean possibly intentionally or unintentionally some sort of ecosystem has been created between Robinhood and Citadel and the way they interact with the exchanges that at worst it's intentional that they're making bid ask spreads wider to reduce liquidity at the exchanges to try to essentially capture more profit for themselves at the expense of everyone that's trading which isn't just retail traders i mean it's pensions funds it's mutual funds when they go to rebalance it's any market participant and all of that spread would essentially be going to market makers or it could just be an accidental happenstance of how the system is set up again that's something that you probably need a lot more academics to look at to figure out what exactly is going on there which has made me kind of give a second think to whether payment for order flow is something that that we should have i think you've done a great job of covering exactly what happened for a lot of people they just heard about something's going on with gamestop and a stock and there's this Reddit's involved again, and those guys are always nuts. That, that was kind of the sentiment I got from a lot of people who weren't actively involved in stocks. You know, a lot of people, they just, they, they have a 401k, right? That's, and they set their risk tolerance and somebody else takes it away from there. So I think you've done a great job of explaining what exactly was going on, why people feel the way they feel, how hedge funds operate, why there may be some fraud, maybe not, but Seems like a lot could have happened, and I know we could go all day on that, but I think I want to shift a little bit more to what happens next, where I've seen a lot of people point out, how is this not a pump and dump by just people who hate rich people? How is this not just a bunch of people getting together in a subreddit and they went after the banks? Right. So being early on, that I mentioned earlier that I found a post by a, a user named Jeff Amazon. He posted it back in September after Ryan Cohen had purchased a large stake in GameStop. And it's really prophetic. I mean, this was posted six months ago, talking about how one of the greatest short squeezes in history could be coming up ahead of us. And he predicted that GameStop's price would go above 400. And people laughed at him and thought he was ridiculous for proposing this theory. And he basically said that the hedge funds and market makers were asleep at the wheel and were just following their algorithm, their mathematical trend of, oh, retail goes down, technology goes up. You know, it's not going to change. That's worked for us. And, and these are kind of younger-ish companies, too. Like Melvin Capital was founded, I want to say, in 2014. Gabe Plotkin is, is a younger guy. I want to say he got his start in the industry in 2006. So these aren't really, really old players who have seen trends change. In the, it's not like Warren Buffett's who have been around for, you know, almost a century, seeing the world kind of shift. So they've seen kind of this one trend. And with the rise of quant hedge funds, and computerized trading, they're like, well, this has worked in the past. I'll probably keep working in the future. No need to adjust or, or revisit it. They've just coasted on it because it, it's been working so well. Well, the little guys, those of us on Wall Street Bets found out, they, they basically stopped paying attention to the fundamentals, such as the management team and a company potentially shifting what it's going to do. And notice that GameStop had some good catalysts. It had the new consoles that were coming out were going to have disk drives. Some people speculated that they wouldn't, it would just be all digital. Well, Microsoft and Sony were both like, no, we're putting disk, we're going to have two versions. We'll have one without a disk drive, but one with a disk drive. And people are more than happy to pay the extra hundred dollars for the disk drive. And Microsoft kind of did their own cost analysis to determine, you know, was it worth it to manufacture an Xbox with a disk drive? And Microsoft said, we anticipate healthy demand for physical games for the foreseeable future. Mm. So when Microsoft said that, a lot of people were we're like, well, GameStop's probably not going to go away. 
there's still for a little while going to be some demand for buying and selling physical games. They're going to have a lot of cash because everyone's going to get excited and buy these new consoles. If you look at the historical GameStop stock price, it spiked every single time there's been a console release because people just get back into gaming. Everyone's excited about it. They want the shiny new console. They go and they buy a bunch of games from GameStop. They've always historically done really well around the beginning of console cycles. So I think that's something that they probably couldn't have ignored. I'm willing to bet that they may have thought GameStop was going to go bankrupt before they had that tailwind, before they essentially got that console cycle bailout to keep them running. But in addition to that good news, when Ryan Cohen essentially started looking like he was going to take over the company, that's when the little guys were like, well, we can speculate and project out into the future. He has a lot of money. He has experience with e-commerce. He could take the brand. You basically buy GameStop for what it is, a recognizable brand that has tens of millions of paying subscribers for their rewards program and turn it into something else. Forget the brick and mortar, shut down the unprofitable stores. Who knows exactly what he's going to do, but he's a really smart guy. He took on Amazon and essentially beat them at their own game and, and made a successful e-commerce company with Chewy. And we all looked at this and was like, you're right. This seems like an opportunity that for whatever reason, retail traders found that these hedge funds didn't. I think they just weren't looking at all. I think they were just sticking with this has always worked. We'll just continue doing that into the future. Yeah. Who cares about GameStop? Maybe? Yeah, who cares about GameStop? They're going bankrupt. So when we found this, we're like, well, there could be a squeeze because it's also being shorted into oblivion. But if you look at their balance sheet, they had enough cash to coast, at least until the infusion that they would get from the consoles. And then once the new consoles came out, their business is always going to pick up and they're always profitable after consoles launch. So yeah, short term, you know, a couple of years, they're not going bankrupt. We can buy them and they'll probably go up in price. So I actually bought it in November. I was kind of late-ish to the game. I bought in around between $16 and $17 a share. And I thought the guys back then that were saying it was going to go to 400 were just silly. I was kind of with everyone else like, yeah, yeah, I, I don't know what you're smoking. Maybe it'll go up to, you know, $50, like historically, may, maybe $100. Because if you adjust for market cap historically, because GameStop actually bought back some of its shares. So it had less shares out there than historically in the past. So a higher price would mean the same market cap as a lower price in the past. So $100 a share I thought was the top. But then as I saw, I read Cohen's letter, I was like, no, he wants to turn this into e-commerce. He can probably go a lot, much higher than that. So it seems the real David and Goliath is the little guys that found that when Wall Street missed that. And the little guys essentially started to price it in. The potential of a turnaround by buying the stock. Wall Street eventually, I believe, did get interested. And there were probably some hedge funds that kicked off the squeeze themselves by buying heavy amounts because they probably took a more speculative bet and were like, GameStop might go bankrupt, but they might turn around and become an e-commerce powerhouse with Cohen. We don't know what the odds are, but if the payout is 10 to 1 on something that's a 50-50 chance of occurring, that's a pretty good bet. And, and we should take it with a chunk of our portfolio. And so I think a lot of hedge funds, we're not exactly sure who they are, but SunVest has been invested in GameStop for a while. Maverick also made a lot of money off of it. And them probably increasing their position, buying more shares, helped initiate the squeeze and, and drove it up to ridiculous levels. So how it's different from a pump and dump is typically pump and dumps happen with much smaller companies. And they're usually defunct penny stock ones where people put out false information. So what they do is they buy a bunch of stock and then they start putting out propaganda or false rumors about a company. And then they get retail excited to where they buy the price up and then, and then they dump all their shares on unsuspecting investors. What happened with GameStop was retailers just found an asymmetric opportunity. They said, hey, there's a chance that GameStop could turn around, become an e-commerce company because not only was it undervalued, it was a good value play at the beginning of 2020 because of their cash reserves that people didn't seem to be taking note of. But once Cohen came in, it wasn't just a value play, it was actually a growth opportunity where if he was successful, it could be worth a lot of money. And no one was spreading false information. No one was making GameStop out to be something it wasn't. They were projecting, saying, hey, in the future, it could be this or it could be that and, and speculating, which is very- And that's what a stock market's for, it's for speculating. 
Right. One of the things was the market was not pricing in the, the probability that GameStop could turn around, which it should because there's information in prices. Prices tell you something about the underlying company. And so you need people that are able to take risk because they can kind of move the price to where it is. No one knows if GameStop's going to go bankrupt or if they're going to be the next Amazon. But the best we can do is kind of guess the probability of where it would fall in between that. And, and that's speculators job. It's the job of people who like myself are willing to take ridiculous risks when we see the market is mispricing the probability. I think the probability is higher or lower. And then with everyone kind of trying to guess, I like to analogize it to if you have a lot of people try to guess the number of gumballs in a jar, they're usually pretty close if you take the average of everyone's guess. Or if you have, you know, a hundred people all try to guess the weight of an elephant, if you average the answers, you usually get pretty close. If you have a lot of speculators in a market trying to make their bets and gamble on what the probability is that a company might succeed or fail, you usually get pretty close to the answer and then the price will reflect the accurate amount of risk that that company entails. Yeah, so I guess the next question I have is, aren't we just going to be regulated? You know, Is this not going to just be fixed? <laughs> What's Congress going to do here? So I'm hoping that Congress just completely stays out of it. That's what Congress needs to do. The House and Senate should have no say here because what can be done to fix these issues can be done just within the SEC, within FINRA, within the DTCC and other self-regulatory agencies. And I've been quite happy at what I've seen suggested. So when I saw the ex-SEC commissioner on the last hearing he said that he was part of the push for a T plus three down to a T plus two settlement time, which what that means is with stocks, when you make a trade, it doesn't settle for a while. Kind of like when you buy a house, you sign a contract, and then there's a couple of things that have to happen before the final deed is signed over and you get your title insurance and everything. Right. You know, it can be a month or two with, with real estate. With stocks, there's still kind of a process like that on the back end that people don't see. It used to be T plus three or the transaction plus three days. Now it's T plus two. And he commissioned the SEC to do some studies to see what the cost benefit was of going to T plus one. And there seems to be a lot of push now to go to T plus one or even same day settlement. So I sell a stock on Monday, the trade is settled, meaning completed by Tuesday. Yeah, it's two days later. So if, well, if you were to make a transaction on Monday, it would settle on Wednesday. It would settle on it Wednesday because it takes one day, one day, Tuesday to finish. Yeah, so T plus two is the transaction's Monday, and then Tuesday is one day, Wednesday is the second day, and that's when it would settle. So in that time period, things can happen. So with short selling, Right now, what's actually interesting is you currently just need to have the reasonable belief that you can borrow the stock. You don't actually have to guarantee you can borrow it. So let's say I'm going to short sell a company and I have a reasonable belief that this other fund will lend me their shares. I can go ahead and just sort of naked short it, but it's not naked because I have the reasonable belief that I can borrow it. Well, come two days later, okay, I need to actually borrow it so I can do, the trade is going to settle now. Let's say I shorted on Monday, it comes Wednesday. Now I need to actually deliver the share to the person I, I sold it to. So I go to borrow it and it turns out this other fund that I thought I could borrow it from sold off their shares. So now I can't, I can't borrow it. So now I have to go find it somewhere and I might be forced to close my position and go buy it in the open market or I might just be forced to, I'll just let it ride as a, a naked short sale. And so what happens in that case is it becomes a fail to deliver. So when that settlement comes, the physical share is not actually turned over to the buyer. And when companies have a certain number of their shares fail to deliver for so long, the SEC puts them on this short sale restricted list. And it also publishes the data for fails to deliver. And what's interesting with GameStop is when the price was rising really, really high on January 27th and 8th, I believe at its height on the 28th, there were something like 2.8 million shares of GameStop that failed to deliver, where basically people were supposed to be receiving their shares and nearly 5% of the company, just the stock didn't get delivered to people that bought it because the people that sold it didn't actually have access to the shares. Now there's a couple of things that it could be. It could be 
hedge funds abusively and illegally naked short selling. It could have been market makers doing their allowed naked short selling and then hoping the price would go down. And as it didn't, they're like, well, we're just going to we're just going to wait for the price to go down. This is ridiculous. We're not going to deliver the shares. Just basically, yeah, it's going to it's going to go back to normal. So just wait. Right. But the problem with that is if it doesn't, if you end up with a bunch of people who are convinced that the stock is going to the moon, that are going to refuse to sell their shares, that are like, I'm holding this thing to a thousand plus because Ryan Cohen is going to turn this into the Amazon of gaming, then you run into, well, you can wait, but are any shares really going to show up for sale? Like, you, you have to deliver these shares that you short sold people. And like, again, it's, it's you're kind of making it worse off later. Like, if you're wrong, it just makes the problem bigger in the future. So I can't really say why there were such high fails to deliver. I suspect a lot of it was market makers. I suspect some of it was people illegally short selling, being like, yeah, this is going to go down. I'm not going to get caught. I'm not going to pay this ridiculous 200% interest that there is for borrowing the shares because there's so little supply out there because everyone wants them because the price is so high. You've got retail buying them. You've got short sellers getting margin called that are buying them to close out their positions. It, it was just really hard to get GameStop shares in that moment. So I guess that's the other angle that I've sometimes heard throughout the hype. People talk about, you know, it was all over the news. There was a big part of it where people were saying, we finally stuck it. We took Wall Street to task. We, you know, the, this is how you eat the rich. I, I, I saw memes about this. You know, it was people making fun of Occupy Wall Street. Hey, that's how you eat the rich. That's how you stick it to them. That's how you start a revolution. But people bought in at 300, 400, and then it went back down to 200. So they're currently holding at a loss. And people have lost a lot of money doing the attack that I hear is the hype is part of the issue. It's just fake hype. The internet is overhyping these things. Yeah, you're right. These guys shorted it to, but these guys closed their short position. It's gone back to normal. And, and now all these people lost money because we were saying to the moon. and you know, Well, hype is normal. Reddits, right. But it's overhyped. It's become sort of just a fad. Yeah. And... So that would be what I'd call a rational exuberance, and that just happens in markets. It's as old as markets themselves. It happened in the Dutch tulip bubble. It happened with internet stocks in 2000. It happened with housing prices in 2007. That's just always going to happen. There's always going to people that want to chase something without doing any sort of research, or they'll use confirmation bias research and not look at the other side of the thesis, kind of like how you know, these hedge funds weren't looking at the bull case for GameStop. When GameStop was reaching four or five hundred dollars a share, people weren't looking at. Did it get ahead of itself? Like it was probably mispriced, and these hedge funds were wrong when it was ten dollars a share. You know, they had a chance of turning around and, and surviving. But at five hundred dollars, it's like, is the probability of it turning around at this point in time worth five hundred dollars right now? Probably not. And so yeah, you had a lot of normal people buy in. They lost a lot of money, but in the first congressional hearing, Vlad Tenev, the CEO of Robinhood said that on the 28th and 27th, I think he actually said the whole week leading up to the peak, that retail was net sellers of GameStop, which I think is absolutely wonderful because what that means is, while some retailers lost money, some retailers made money, some hedge funds lost money, some hedge funds made money. If retailers were net sellers on the way up, that means net they were the winners. They held the stock beforehand they sold it at the high prices. And for the most part, it was the hedge funds that had short sold that were buying it at those high prices to cover their shorts because it had gotten too painful. The price had gone up. They were afraid of it going up even higher. So yeah, some retailers got hurt. But overall, again, just going by what Vlad said in the first hearing, it would appear that, that retail did actually come out net ahead. And the hedge funds did come out net behind, even though there were winners. There are more more losers in the hedge fund world, more winners on the retail side. Going back to, I, I went on a bit of a rant as far as what should be done. Settlement times should definitely decrease, which the SEC commissioner said, I'm, I'm very hopeful for that. And the DTCC itself, which is a clearinghouse, they kind of act as an insurance middleman. They're kind of like what a, a title agency does when you're buying and selling a house. They basically kind of guarantee the transaction on both sides, they become a counterparty. They're implementing some rules that I won't go into the details of, but it would give them the power essentially to 
instant liquidate certain market participants that were in overly risky positions, whether that was Robinhood, who had a terrible position that they couldn't post collateral for, or if that's a hedge fund that they end up finding out that they did abusively naked short sell it into oblivion and have this massive amount of risk, the DTCC can now say, hey, uh, we're not going to pay for your gambling debts. We're taking control of your assets and we're liquidating you right now before it gets out of hand, which can seem a little cruel, but the DCCC doesn't want to do that to anyone that has a reasonable chance of survival. They'll do it. Really a risk buffer. Yeah, they'll do it when it looks like someone made an outlandish bet, like if someone shorted a ridiculous amount of something and if the price starts going up, there's no way that they have the collateral to cover it. Like this hedge fund, if they sold off all of their other assets, they still might not have enough money to buy their shorts or to cover their short position. Because if that happens, then the broker has to cover it. And if the broker can't cover it because it's so ridiculously high, ultimately the DTCC is the one that has to pay for it. If a broker fails, then the DTCC is the one that has to be the counterparty and pay out the winnings to the other side. And you could just see a market implosion occurring. These people pass along this payment they have to make. Right. Like if you make a ridiculously risky bet that has infinite downside and you're wrong, let's say I did and I go bankrupt and I owe something happens. I owe trillions of dollars. Well, that's never going to come from me. So the counterparty is going to come after my broker, Charles Schwab, for it. If Charles Schwab doesn't have enough assets under management to cover, say they liquidate everything and they can't cover the bill, then it goes to the DTCC and they have to liquidate their assets to try to cover the bill and, and pay out the winner. And Thomas Peterfly, the founder and chairman of Interactive Brokers, went on. And he was actually concerned about this during the GameStop rise. Interactive Brokers cut off buying GameStop because he was worried about the fact that there were derivatives that represented something like 250 million shares of GameStop that were potentially exercisable, where people could demand those shares delivered to them right away, when only 65 million shares existed. So you could end up with this ridiculous bidding war for people trying to buy shares that didn't even exist and, and deliver them. And he thought the price would go into the thousands. And if it did that, then you certainly would have seen cascading bankruptcies. It would have taken down hedge funds and it would have possibly bankrupted some of the smaller brokers that couldn't handle obligations like that, like Robinhood. And Interactive Brokers itself isn't actually that large of a broker. There's kind of three giants in the industries, Vanguard, Fidelity, and, and Schwab. Those three probably wouldn't go bankrupt. But anyone else, if you had a severe incident, you, you could see cascading failures of brokers if, if people just started making ridiculous bets and the liabilities fell on them. So obviously, I think this is a still ongoing saga, you know, GameStop, their stock price is still at, at this current moment, <laughs> which always is changing moment to moment, is hovering around 200. You know, it's going to just see how this plays out. You know, Congress will be acting or not acting. So I just wanted to catch your opinion as we wrap up here. Um, I got a couple of questions on just what should be going on, in your opinion, from here. So the first question I had is, what should the market do in response to this? So by the market, I would say to normal people and those nearing retirement, they, they should calm down. The volatility that they see in GameStop, or GameStop is not <laughs> probably not going to severely affect their pension funds or their 401k or their Vanguard total index funds. Over time, the market is probably going to produce a very stable return. So people shouldn't freak out, think the game is entirely rigged and, and pull all their money out of the stock market. That, that's not what you should do. What the DTCC should do is enact their new rule proposal that would allow them to immediately margin call brokers and say, hey, post collateral. And if not, we're, we're going to take it to sort of protect themselves, because like I said, they're the ultimate insurance. They're the ultimate counterparty for almost every trade that occurs on our financial securities markets. And so the DTCC is going in the right direction. The SEC, I think, is going in the right direction, working with FINRA, trying to shorten settlement times because shortening settlement times reduces the amount of operational error that can occur. It reduces the incentive to try to commit illegal naked short selling because it's a lot harder to get away with it when you have less time, essentially, to come up with the shares before you have to report it as a fail to deliver. And if you're speculative and like to trade now is a really good time to do it because volatility is really good for active traders because you can make money when the market goes up or down. If there's a lot of mov movement 
and you're right about being able to predict that movement or capitalize on it, then it's a really good time to be an active trader right now. It's also a really good time to be a market maker too, because during times of volatility, they make a lot of money because trading goes up. But normal people just need to, like I said, calm down, not worry about the volatility. In the long run, everything's gonna be all right. There's no need to pull all your money out of your 401k or the stock market. And then I guess the last question that I have for you is, for a lot of people, They've listened to this episode, they've read papers, but we used a lot of terms today, liquidity, FINRA, there's a lot of terms that people just don't encounter in their daily lives. And obviously you can't pull out an hour long podcast every time somebody brings up the situation. So let's say I'm at a party and somebody there says, hey, what those Redditors did to GameStop was illegal or wrong, or it was sketchy. The Reddit is at fault here. They caused something illegal to happen. What do I say to that person? Well, one thing that I would do is I'd probably pull up a post or a couple posts from Reddit and show it to them months ago, back from September, when people were theorizing on Wall Street bets that, hey, this could happen. And they're very short. It's only a couple of paragraphs. And they're like, this could happen. It's not our fault. They didn't think they had the power to make it happen. They're like, we can't institute a short squeeze. We don't have the capital for it. The squeeze was most likely triggered by big hedge funds piling into the momentum. All the Redditors did was they saw an opportunity, they saw an undervalued company and bought it. And it looks like they're gonna be right. It looks like GameStop's gonna be around for a bit. And at the time when the first Redditors bought in under 20, under $40, the company looks like it's worth a lot more than that now. So basically when that person says, hey, it was illegally, no, they made a guess and that guess was right. Yeah, they didn't even think that they could, could squeeze it really. Some people speculated that it could be possible, but there was no organized squeeze. They weren't talking about intentionally trying to, I mean, later on, once the price had gone into the hundreds, people who weren't on Wall Street bets came in and said, let's stick it to the rich and started specifically buying options that were in the money or at the money. and and started trying to get others on board with trying to squeeze. But at that point, they couldn't have. The market cap was so high that the people that were talking about doing that couldn't have done it. The ones that kicked off the squeeze, the Redditors just saw an undervalued company, and that was it. They just saw a company that was really cheap. They saw a company that had a potentially bright future. And they, the original guys, we bought it for the value. We didn't buy it initially as a speculative play. We, we bought it because it was generally undervalued. It seemed like no one read the balance sheet of this company. <laughs> well, I just want to thank you for coming on today and, and bringing a lot more light into this subject. Uh, usually we tend to be a little bit more nebulous and high levels, but we wanted to cover this specifically because it really brings in a lot of what happens in our markets into one event with one company. So I just want to thank you, Shane, for uh, joining today. Yeah. Thanks again for having me on. I enjoyed it. Thanks for listening. And if you have a comment, question, or rant, we'd love to hear it. Email us at bluestateconversations at gmail.com. Follow us on Twitter and Facebook and find our articles on Medium. If you like this podcast, share it with a friend. No matter what state you're in, blue, red, or purple, there is always room at the table to discuss your views in a way that lets us all grow. 